Listener note, the following podcast contains descriptions of murder that some listeners may find upsetting. Some scenes have been dramatised. It's the most significant step forward we've had in this case for 40 years. As we do develop and progress our technologies over the years, we can now revisit these items and continue to do work with them. Police Scotland hold a DNA profile and we believe that DNA profile to be that of the killer. The best thing that anybody could ever do in your life is, did you impact somebody positively? Did you do that? And well, he did. In episode four of Who is the Cheesewire Killer? We heard about the local man who had a premonition of the murder of a taxi driver five weeks before George Murdoch was gruesomely killed. About how George's family are still fighting for justice to find his killer. And the Crime Watch TV appeal that brought new leads to this cold case inquiry. We also spoke to Alan Hendry, the first police officer to arrive at the scene of George's attack, who believes that errors were made by the police in the initial search for George's killer. This murder took place in 1983, and since then, although the police have had several promising leads, unfortunately, these inquiries have not led to discovering the identity of George's killer. So, whilst making this podcast, one thing I was not expecting to happen was the police announcing the biggest development in this case in the past 40 years. of the four previous episodes of Who is the Cheesewire Killer has had a title name. Episode 1 was called The Last Fair. Episode 2, A 40-Year Police Investigation Begins. Episode 3, Jesse. And Episode 4, The Premonition. When it came to deciding a title for Episode 5, well, that was an easy decision. Because... Throughout most of the interviews I've conducted with the police and George's friends and family, there was one phrase I kept hearing time and time and time again. Somebody knows who did it. There's people out there just keeping quiet. 
not telling us what they know. Someone out there knows who did it. My expectation would be that somebody would know about it other than just the killer. There's absolutely still people there who, who can help. There's no question about it. I firmly believe that somebody out there knows something. Who is the Cheesewire Killer? Episode 5. Somebody Knows Something. When I first started investigating this murder, one question I had was, how long was it before police decided a murder case was no longer a live case, but was now a cold case? With George's murder, the truth is, this never really ever became a cold case. It has been 40 years since George was killed. But this case was never technically ever closed. It's always been a live case. Yes, there has been periods of time when perhaps the police didn't have the resources to give it their full attention. But over the years, new leads have been investigated. Possible suspects ruled out. And further inquiries made that unfortunately have all led to dead ends. 40 years and George's murderer has never been identified. But why? Detective Inspector James Callender from Police Scotland. The person responsible is either told absolutely nobody, which I don't think is the case, or has passed away. There's people out there just keeping quiet, not telling us what they know. And quite honestly, in 1983, 1983 officers didn't have the luxury of CCTV or forensics that we've got today, or mobile phone data or, or anything like that. It's, uh, it's a different way of policing now. And that, that's probably the main reason. You know, it, it, was, it was boots on the ground, you know, conventional policing tactics that was deployed back in 1983, which you could argue did that make the, the detectives back in the day better than they are today? Possibly because they were, they were working on sheer detective ability as opposed to having that forensic stuff for the CCTV. It was all, you, know, you could argue nowadays it's, it's made easier for us because of technology. And that's an opinion also shared by George Murdoch's nephew, Alex Mackay. I think there's just the one piece of information, a good piece of information. We may already have it. We may already have it. You know, I know when we spoke to the police way, way back, um, they said they interviewed 10,000 people. That person's probably in that pool. The needle in the haystack, if you like, but they're in there. So, bad luck a little bit in terms of why it hasn't been solved to date. Just the, where it was, in terms of the location, and the, the where it was in terms of the year, 1983, no CCTV. Um, didn't have the technologies, DNA wasn't around then. Um, so a lot of things were against it, stranger on stranger crime, hard, very hard to, to solve. So despite all those obstacles, all those things that, gee, this is why it's taking so long, and well, a lot of people thinking, oh, this will never be solved. Ah, uh, well, that's fine, let them think that. We, we, um, we obviously believe it will be. With 10,000 statements taken during the initial stages of the investigation, there's a strong possibility 
that George's killer was interviewed by the police. Which means that somewhere within those 10,000 statements, locked away within the secure storage offices of Police Scotland, a piece of paper exists, with the killer's name and his written statement giving himself an alibi. A false alibi. A total fabrication of lies to hide his guilt and escape his rightful punishment. Detective Inspector James Callender. Well, I believe the person is in there. We have thousands of statements. We've done, I think it was upwards of about 10,000, if I'm getting my figures right, uh, house to house done. So we have the names and statements of many, many people. So I'm confident it is in there. It's, it's how we get it out of there is a difficult thing. But yeah, that gets looked at. You know, as soon as new information comes in, we can delve into the archive to... So, for example, somebody phones in to, to say, you might want to speak to, you know, Jimmy Smith. We can go into the archive and, and see everything that is linked to Jimmy Smith back in 1983. So, uh, we were just in it the other day looking for, for stuff. So, uh, we're in and out the, the archives regular, but there is a lot of stuff. But, of course... Another of the biggest differences between police inquiries of 1983 compared to the ones of today is the discovery of DNA, which now plays a major factor in the UK criminal justice system. Could the advancements of forensics hold the key to unlocking the identity of George's killer? And more specifically, DNA. For this podcast, for the first time ever, two members of Police Scotland's forensic team have agreed to be interviewed about this case to help shed some light on the forensics in this investigation. So I'm Sarah Walker and I'm a forensic biologist at the Aberdeen Laboratory. I'm James Hawkins and I'm a service delivery manager at the Dundee Laboratory. But at the point of working on this case, I was a forensic scientist who also specialises in biology. I meet Sarah and James via video call. Sarah has grey hair, tied back in a ponytail and wears black rimmed glasses. James has short light hair and also wears glasses. Neither of them worked as forensic scientists back in 1983. James wasn't even born then. I started off by asking them about the forensics that was found and catalogued at the murder scene. In terms of actually at, at the crime scene, obviously Sarah and myself weren't there. It was many, many years ago. However, into the laboratory, what was recovered from the scene itself were certain items were thought to have been of interest to the case. We also received productions that had been taken from the taxi that had obviously been the locus of the incident. We received items pertaining to the scene itself, but nothing actually. We weren't physically there to examine the scene. Back in the early 2000s, I was the first scientist of the sort of modern era, if you like, to open up these items that had been stored by the police since the time of the crime. And basically it was a, a case of trying to assess what possible forensic opportunities existed for each of the items um, that we had. So this included clothing from the deceased George Murdoch. We had, as James has said, items from within the taxi and some items taken from around and about the area where the taxi had been found. And so the assessment was, was there anything we could 
recover now that wasn't part of the forensic capabilities in the 1980s. And this was really around DNA um, more than things like finger marks or fibres because those, those sorts of things would have existed back in the 1980s. So really our, our approach for forensic opportunities in the early 2000s was to try and, and recover DNA um, from the items that we, that we were given. Then, of course, there's the added complication that George's car wasn't just his own car. His vehicle was used as a taxi. It does come with challenges. When somebody's present within an environment, we would expect them to transfer material from their clothing and from them, their bodies themselves. So we would expect background DNA from somebody who might have traveled in that taxi. We would expect DNA from the deceased himself having been a regular driver of that taxi. So well, what it really does is it brings a slightly more complex feel to the results sometimes. Without knowing who's been in that taxi, what we can't do is we can't use that DNA information from that person to allow us to look at what potentially in this big mixture of DNA could be from you know, somebody of interest in, in that case. It just adds that, that extra complexity to something. It's, it's a lot of unknowns and DNA evidence, essentially, is you would take a collection of skin cells from a surface and you could have five skin cells from somebody, 20 from somebody else, and 30 from somebody else, and four from somebody else, and it creates this big mixture. And when you get a DNA result at the end of it, the mixture doesn't tell you who's from what and what's from who, and, and it becomes really quite complicated in certain scenarios. And then when you add in the duration of time in the 80s between now, we also have degradation effects across profiles, so it adds another complexity when you're interpreting findings of that nature. So if it were to be um, maybe a car that, that hadn't been, that wasn't a taxi, you'd, you'd potentially have, um, have, a, have an easier way to interpret the results because you would have essentially known people within that car that you could use their own DNA profile to help you out with your interpretation. But with a taxi, yeah, it's... It's really quite a difficult one because you've got so many unknowns within that taxi. So, what was forensics like back in 1983? The reality of forensic science was um, you were quite limited to what techniques were about. So, generally speaking, there were, there were fibres and there was hairs. Um, there was visible biological fluids that could be identified using certain tests as well. However, we didn't have, as we know it today, DNA analysis as such. If you were to detect saliva on something, you weren't able to say who that saliva had come from. If you were to detect semen on something, you weren't able to say who that semen had come from. What we did have back then, I think we did have blood grouping. So should there have been visible blood on something, it was possible to use blood grouping to infer the possible identity or the possible source of that blood. One of the key advances from in terms of forensics, as, as we've said, was DNA analysis. But let's not downplay what, what was possible back in the, in the 80s. Yes, as there was blood grouping where and serology where certain body fluids could be identified and a possible donor grouped. But the wider population, the number of people that might be blood group A or blood group B or blood group O, those percentages meant it wasn't a particularly discriminating technique. But what was far more discriminating at the time was fibres examination, which is where fibres from an item of clothing can be transferred between 
two individuals that have been in contact with one another. And by analysing the dye content of those fibres, you could be quite discriminating as to whether or not they're matching a particular item of clothing. Using things like finger marks, footwear marks, fibres examination and serology, all of those areas of forensics back in, in in that era could be put into use. But a lot of that all depended on the person being identified around the the relevant time. And in this particular case, they didn't have that. So there wouldn't have been clothing from a possible suspect that could be looked at for fibre transfers. If there were any finger marks, they had no suspect. In this particular case, wasn't a person who has bled at the scene to leave things like blood or saliva that they could then compare to any possible suspect. So whilst there was forensic opportunities back in the day, I think the thing that really played on this case was the, uh, there wasn't anyone identified very early on who could be a, pos- a really strong candidate as a suspect. I think there were some items of clothing recovered from one or two individuals, but as far as the police investigation went, there was very little in terms of persons of interest. We know that DNA technology has progressed significantly over the past 40 years. But what does this mean to the George Murdoch inquiry and the hunt for his killer? Through the years, DNA analysis has been improved at rates that we never actually predicted. Back when DNA profiling was first established, you had to almost have something visible in order to generate a DNA profile, should that be a bit of blood or the detection of semen or saliva on something. But as DNA's progressed and as the technology has improved, we've been able to generate DNA profiles from much from smaller and smaller and smaller amounts of DNA to the point that even across research centres, not necessarily casework centres, they've even established DNA profiles from one or two cells. It's changed the way that we approach forensic casework throughout the years. And in particular, in this case, it was one of the main tools that when we came to look at what had been recovered and what had been done, even um, back in the 2000s, when I came to look at the case back in 2019, I think it was, the technology had improved even between the early 2000s and when I picked up the case in 2019, such that there was even more opportunity to go back and retest things that Sarah had initially retested, because at every single point of a case, if the technology changes, then there's value in redoing things. So DNA analysis has been has been a real a fundamental driver in um, in the detection of these cold kind of cases over the years. The reality of um, of DNA around this case in particular, we had hair and fibres back in the 80s, and these were routinely recovered. But if you didn't have a suspect, then there was no real benefit of looking at those fibres, generally speaking. So they were preserved and they weren't looked at. So when we pick up the case 20 or 30 years later, and in this instance, we still don't have a suspect, we can then look to retest these kind of samples. The ones that have been taken for hair and fibres will actually contain surface debris as well. So we can start to look to retest those using DNA as the most one of the most sensitive techniques we have. So that we can start to look at whether there's biological information, whether there's DNA evidence that we can link people to whether it be hair and fibres that are taken from the jacket back in the early 2000s, or whether it be hair and fibre tokens that were taken from the taxi by the scene examiners back in the 80s. So we can start to use the material that was, that was collected for, for application of DNA analysis using today's standards. So 
DNA analysis has really changed the way that we um, that we approach most casework that we get through the biology units. DNA is usually the, the first or at least one of the major considerations in a case. And usually given given this discriminatory power of it, it's it's seen obviously in the courts and by the police and by us as forensic scientists as being been a real tool for success to providing that bit of value that links people to crime scenes or links people to each other in, in cases like this. With significant progress in DNA techniques and the sheer volume of statements taken close to the time of the murder, these two factors have the potential to help solve this murder. Does that mean that the police are finally closing in to identifying the killer? Gary Winter retired from Police Scotland in 2023 and from 2015 to 2020 was the senior investigating officer on the George Murdoch case. It is a needle in a haystack in a, in a, in a, in a, in a field full of haystacks. It is absolutely vast, the amount of material there, but what you, what you have over a long period of time is you know, different names getting mentioned. And what you end up with is, you know, you see, you see have a pool of about, we pick a figure of 10,000, it was about 10,000 nominals created from house to house inquiries. So that gives you the scale of how many houses they were around. But if you think of all that, that many nominals, i.e. people's names that you've got, there'll be uh, a few names that get mentioned in relation to the murder. And there's some supportive evidence to, to that, that, that could make you think that these individuals could be responsible. However, there's lots of inquiries that we could do to try and eliminate people. And that, that piece of work has been ongoing now for a number of years. And you can get to a stage where, you know, you can be quite comfortable uh, eliminating people that might have been named as being responsible before. So uh, I'm confident that given the severity of the crime, the unusual nature of it and some of the unique features um, of, you know, for example, the murder weapon, you know, it's just such an unusual item to have in your pocket. Why would you have that with you to if you were looking to commit a crime? It's not even an obvious weapon that you would use to threaten somebody with. It's not like a knife. You know, if you're going to do a robbery, you would think you would take a, a, a bladed weapon or a heavy object. If you're going to threaten somebody with a cheese wire, you almost have to carry it out. You know, you, you have to actually grot somebody to, for, for, I suppose, for you to be taken seriously. Whereas if you, you, do, you know, if you look, at, you have to get it round your neck for it to be effective. So. It's just such an unusual item that, that makes me think, you know, with some of the other unique features of the case where he ended up and, and the limited information you have about, about where he was going and, and the fact that, you know, obviously we'll have a quite unusual to have a murder that's actually witnessed, you know, a couple of witnesses that, that, that saw certainly part of the assault happening on, on Dodd. So all of those give me hope. And, and through, through, through my own work in cold cases before, sometimes you just need a break. And then, in 2018, Police Scotland finally did get the break they had been waiting for. Well, actually, it would be totally unfair to downplay this as a break. This step forward in the case was down to the sheer tenacity, the expertise and literally the hundreds of man and woman hours across two decades conducted by the team of forensic scientists at Police Scotland. At the time of this discovery, the police chose not to announce this new information to the public. But they did announce it on the 29th of September 
2023. So Police Scotland released information last week uh, on the anniversary, the 40th anniversary of uh, George's murder that Police Scotland hold a DNA profile uh, and we believe that DNA profile to be that of the killer. We've had that DNA now for a few years. Uh, you know, over the, the 40 years of this inquiry, we've established 50, 60 names of people who we would class as persons of interest and we've had a duty to, to in essence, eliminate, you know, those people. It can only be one, so it was always a, a, a kind of an, an elimination exercise. We're now at a stage where that's almost complete uh, and it tied in, you know, perfectly with the 40-year anniversary, so I think it was the right thing to do to let the public know that we actually do have a DNA profile and, and seek their assistance. Since the early 2000s, at various review periods of this this inquiry, have looked at you know new forensic techniques that have been coming in. So it's taken upwards of twenty years to get to this this stage. It's not been a quick process, uh, and it's it's mainly down to the advancements in forensic technology and the great work done by the forensic scientists who've been working on it for all these years. It, it, it's a huge step forward for us. It's the most significant step forward we've had in this case for 40 years. So the hope is that somebody out there who believes their father may have been responsible, for them to come forward and we can we can take their DNA if you know their father's passed away and we can you know start to, to eliminate various other people that come to the come into the inquiry. But the, yeah, the hope is that by putting this out there, the public will be able to help us identify who's responsible. I firmly believe that somebody out there knows something. It's impossible to think that 40 years has passed and nobody knows anything. Pretty sure somebody out there does know something, so the hope is that they will come forward. It's almost difficult to take this in, to comprehend the magnitude of this step forward in the case. A murder from 1983, 40 years ago, at the time, over 10,000 statements recorded. Over four decades, hundreds of police officers have worked on this case. And 40 years later, the police now have a DNA profile of George's killer. But the reality is that without a suspect and someone to match this DNA profile to, it's still a mammoth undertaking for the police to catch George's killer. As well as the forensic evidence held by Police Scotland, there are other key aspects of this case which could make it more likely to be solved. Here's Gary Winter again, the senior investigating officer on the George Marduk case from 2015 to 2020. I would be relatively confident if the police were able to divert time and resources to it that almost every cold case could be solved, depending on the quality of the material that was retained by the original inquiry team. What I mean by that is that you still have all the relevant uh, productions and exhibits from the time and they've been properly preserved in the right sort of baggage and they haven't deteriorated in any way that you would have a good chance using modern investigative techniques of solving any case particularly with George Murdoch's case in terms of the volume of material that was obtained back in 1983 is absolutely vast from the scale of the house-to-house the -house inquiries that were done and all the other investigations that were done, plus the preservation of all the productions uh, has been 
exceptional. So that allows you to, you've obviously captured an awful lot of material back then, so it can be reviewed now and see what people have had to say for themselves in 1983. And separately from a sort of forensic side of it, allows you to have a look at all of those items to see, you know, what changes there have been in the forensic science world since 1983 and what you can do to, to enhance what you may, you may already have. This case has unique elements. And now the police do have the DNA profile of the killer. In 1983, the killer was thought to have been between 20 and 30 years old. So now he'd probably be somewhere between 60 and 70 years old. So there is a chance that the killer himself may be dead. How does this affect the police investigation? That the person they are looking for may not even still be alive. It makes it harder if they're, they're passed away, because we can't speak to them. But it, it doesn't make any difference. Uh, I think 40 years on, yes, the family would want to see some kind of justice and some kind of, you know, sentence to whoever was responsible. But at the same time, if we were to, to identify who was responsible and they were, they were deceased, it's closure for the family and they can they can put it to bed and try and get on with their lives, so it doesn't make any difference. We would like the person to be alive, obviously, but it would make no difference at all. If the police were able to say to us tomorrow, we can definitively say it was this person that did it. Obviously, you're not going to go to court now because you can't. The person can't defend themselves. That's closure, um, and that would be just absolutely fine that we, we knew who it was. It would be interesting if we knew who it was, well, what was that person like? Was, were they, other than this, a good person? My sense is that it wasn't a good person. What was, what was their story? And it would be kind of really interesting to know what their story was. Even if George's killer is dead, this simply makes no difference to the motivation of the police nor George's family, to continue their quest to find this individual. But what happens if no one comes forward to identify this killer? What then for this investigation? If this proves negative, this process that we're, we're embarking on at the moment with the, the hope that somebody will come forward, there are other options open to us by way of, of the DNA. You know, there's genealogy, route that is a potential, although that's never really been done in this country. There's familial DNA testing, which is, is also a possibility. I'll just give you an overview as to what we mean when we talk about, firstly, familial. Obviously, your DNA is unique to you, um, unless you've got a, an identical twin. But your DNA is contributed by your mother and your father, so they both contribute to your DNA profile. So automatically, we already have a, a means by which we can compare. My DNA profile will have types in common with my mum and my dad, but also with my brother and any other siblings I might have. And then as you trace your family tree back the way, there will equally be portions of your DNA that are in common with your direct and some of your indirect relatives. This is a method where we can look at a person's DNA profile and then look to see on the database if there are any profiles that show similarity across many of the types. So this might be a close relative who's held on the database. 
the genealogy side of thing, this is, has only really become something that could be used for forensic purposes in the last few years. And I think there's a stated case in the Golden State Killer in America where they've done genealogy testing to try to identify an unknown individual who was responsible for a number of crimes. But in this country, genealogy is something that has some ethical issues, but it is, as I say, a means by which you can trace back through a family tree individuals who have DNA types in common. You know, it doesn't end here. There's still options open to us. 40 years on, we're still looking at this case. We're still looking at this case because we do have, you know, DNA and we do believe it can be solved. But I think there's also, you know, we live in a very compassionate and, you know, forward-looking country. And society, I don't think, would allow us just to forget about it. There's also the fact that the family are, are very active themselves and and have worked very closely with us and we have a good relationship with them. So any cold case in Scotland, I think the public can be reassured that you know we will look into to positive lines of inquiry if they exist. However, before the police even contemplate exploring other avenues to try and match this DNA, the only thing they can really do is wait. The 40th anniversary of George's murder has drawn a significant level of media attention. It would be near impossible, especially if you live in Aberdeen, to have missed this coverage. And if someone out there who has seen, read or heard any of this coverage that has the answers the police are looking for, are they able to dig deep enough to do the right thing. Someone out there knows who did it. There's people out there just keeping quiet, not telling us what they know. My expectation would be somebody out there knows something. If somebody would know about it other than just the killer. Just keeping quiet. There's absolutely still people there who, who can help. There's no question about it. I firmly believe someone out there knows who did it. Somebody would know about it. Somebody knows who did it. Somebody out there knows something. And this is where a person's morals and values really do come into play. Where family loyalty or a friendship must be put aside. And doing the right thing becomes the only option. Ask yourself this. What would you do? What would you do if you thought that your father, your uncle, or your brother was responsible for the murder of George Murdoch. It's something that I've asked myself hundreds of times over the past few months. Detective Inspector James Callender. It's a really difficult thing for somebody to do, to come forward and tell us they think their father was responsible. So, you know, just really ask to dig down deep into your own conscience and you know, do the right thing. It, it goes without saying this is the right thing to do. Uh, and at the same time, there is obviously a sub substantial reward of £50,000 for anybody who comes forward with information that confirms the identity of the killer.
ultimately somebody comes forward and tells us information, that information is, is highly confidential. We are never going to be putting anybody uh, at risk by releasing their information. So whoever does come forward can be confident that they're coming forward in confidence. If their parent is deceased, for example, their identity will never be disclosed. Will someone now do the right thing and give George and Jesse Murdoch the opportunity to finally rest in peace? If justice was served before Jesse passed away, what would this have meant to her? Here's David Wright, who stayed with Jesse for almost three years after George's death. It wouldn't have made it easier for her. I think if she had to go through a trial or anything, I, I don't know how she would have coped with that. But, yeah, I think she would have she would have wanted to see somebody being punished for, for what they did to, to Dodd and destroying her life as well. Um, Yeah, just you want it. You want justice, not just for Don, but for Jesse, for the whole family. Sorry. Somebody knows who did it. How you can defend somebody that's taken somebody's life? I'll never ever know. Never know that. A good man, a good couple that didn't deserve what happened to them. After five episodes, it does feel like the police are getting closer to finding out who is the cheesewire killer. Although this is the final episode, if the killer is identified in the coming weeks, months or even years, then we will be back. In this episode, we've heard a lot about forensics, about DNA profiles, fibre analysis, the ongoing police inquiry, cold cases. But before we go, I'd like to bring this back to the most important thing of all. And that's George and Jesse. As we know, Jesse passed away in 2004. Her friends and family say that she never got over the death of George. She had many hospital visits and her mental and physical health both suffered. If no one ever does come forward to identify the killer, if the police never find out who was responsible for this brutal attack, then the only person who knows what really happened that night, excluding the killer, was George himself. It's just a few days away from this episode of the podcast being released and George's family have very kindly given me permission to visit George's grave to pay my respects. It's a crisp autumn day in October. It's dry with blue skies. As you'd expect, the graveyard where George rests is peaceful 
and that's the very least that he deserves. He deserves to lie in peace. After seven months of putting this podcast together, I can't say that I know George Murdoch, but after interviewing the people who did know him, I do feel like I know the person who he was. He was a cheerful man, a shy individual, but with a natural kindness and warmth. And I can't help thinking that George, he wouldn't want to be remembered as the murdered taxi driver killed by the hands of the cheesewire killer. He'd prefer to be remembered as the man who he was. He and Jesse didn't have children of their own, but he did enjoy the company of his nieces and nephews. I'd prefer to remember George as a family man, a loving and hard-working husband who took pride in looking after his wife. A man who enjoyed spending time with his friends over a drink in the pub or playing a game of bingo. A man whose life was tragically cut short simply because he was in the wrong place at the wrong time. So, as I stand here at his final resting place, I ask, what is George Murdoch's legacy? Here's Alex Mackay, George's nephew. He was a good man. He didn't deserve, nobody deserves this in fairness, nobody does, but he didn't deserve this. He, he, was, he was good to people. He was good to the kids. Um, he enjoyed his life. Um, he brought a smile to your face. The best thing that anybody could ever do um, to en- in your life is, did you impact somebody positively? Did you do that? When you're lying in your deathbed, did you do that? And Well, he did. Man, Jesse certainly did. Um, and that's, that's how I'll remember them. And kind of, we're the last generation that has that thoughts for them. I'll remember him fondly. We think about him a lot. Um, we go visit him, his grave, every every so often. Um, have a little chat with him. But uh, yeah, no, he's he, he's impacted me in a, in a good way. I think that is his legacy. The countless people in his life who he made a positive impact on, including his neighbour David, who looked upon him as a grandfather and George's nephew Alex and his wife Rubina. We should all try to remember George as the happy person who he was. With his close circle of friends singing his favourite song to his beloved wife Jessie. Thank you for listening. Come on George, it's your turn to sing now. Come Come on. on George. You made me love you I didn't want to do it I didn't want to do it You made me want you And all the time you knew it I guess you always knew it You made me happy sometimes Sometimes you made me glad
If you have any information about what may have happened to George Murdoch on the night of 29th September 1983, please do get in touch. A £50,000 reward remains for any information that successfully leads to the identity of the killer. You can private message the George Murdoch Facebook page. Search for Appeal for Information Aberdeen Taxi Driver 1983 George Murdoch on Facebook. You can email jdhallfield at mail.co.uk or you can call Police Scotland on 101, all of which you can do anonymously. Also, please rate, share and tell people about this podcast. The more people who hear this story, the better chance we have of finally bringing George Murdoch's killer to justice. You've been listening to Who is the Cheesewire Killer? Written, produced, edited and presented by me, Ryan Ogilvie. Mixed by Christopher McDonald. Dramatic scenes were produced by Leanne Colston, Rory O'Shea and Steve Henderson. Actors included Angela Duguid, Ben Barclay, Daniel Warren, Guillaume Potter, Jenny Dunbar, Kenny Blythe, Kenny Luke, Martin Barclay-Bell, Oliver Johnston and Steve Henderson. Music from New Noise Audio and Soundstripe. Studio facilities were provided by Original 106. This is a Mind the Gap creative production.